Good evening. We're able to get all mic'd up here so everybody can hear me all right. <clears throat> Before we get started, I have a, <laughs> have a little bit of a confession to make. So I, my faith is weak in this area, but I'm not really sure any day that starts off 20 degrees can be a holy day. Like, I, I struggle with that. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm with the Israelites in the desert. They were in the desert out the tundra. The desert is, I don't, 20 degrees is a bit much for me. That's, that's and that's, yeah, and I, from what I understand, next week it gets colder. So I just, I don't know. When I wake up and the temperature is below freezing, I'm not, this is not a, this is, this is not a holy day to me. I don't know about all that. Um. So I, I'll mention off the top here uh, before we dig into our lesson. And if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to pick up kind of where we left off this morning. And tonight, we're, since when we first talked about how we should conduct our Sunday evening services, we did have some people ask to do a more traditional service every now and then. Uh, that's what tonight's format will be like. I'm just down here instead of up there because, uh, well, for starters, y'all kind of feel this way. So being further away doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And then I, there's something about a podium that makes it feel a little bit too much about me and not what I'm saying, me personally. So I understand for reasons that we have them, but I'm going to be down here as much as I can be just to, for my two cents. Um, and I, I also wanted to mention something. I meant to mention this this morning. Um, I wish I could really put into words how happy some people were to receive the Christmas baskets over this last week. Um, I felt really blessed that I got to show up and receive the joy and experience how happy some people were. Um, I, I tried to take a couple pictures, but there's something about calling uh, elderly folk in the middle of the day and stopping by on no notice that they don't really want you to take a picture. They might let you inside if you have candy and ornaments, but they're not really down with you taking pictures of them usually. <laughs> But uh, in that, and it just honestly, it really didn't occur to me at the time. But I, uh, I just really want to impart to you guys how excited people were to receive their Christmas baskets. And I know some still have not, but that's, uh, that was really cool. That was really cool. So um, I guess just when it, it, it's always neat when we can do stuff like that and sort of serve each other and, and act out the things we talk about all the time, I guess. Um, so speaking of things we talk about... Uh, tonight, we're going to continue what we've been talking about. If you've been with us, we've been talking about church membership. And we've been, we started this conversation on church membership, talking about like, why we call ourselves the church. Then we looked at what the, what the source for the church's teachings and our faith are. And, and this morning, we began examining what is our purpose. What is the purpose of the church? And we looked at this passage from 1 Corinthians 12. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and we talked about how the body is one and has many members. There are many members, but one body. And so as a body, we are not divided. We cannot have members who exist alone. We cannot fellowship alone. We cannot worship alone. We cannot be made spiritually whole by ourselves because we are members of one body. And so being the body also means we connect, that we don't just coexist, but we actually connect to one another. As we begin this evening, we're going to look back at uh, 1 Corinthians 12 for a little bit, and then we're going to move on to, I think, what is a really good example of what we talk about when we say that we should connect as a body. So we're, we're going to wrap up with a few more notes from 1 Corinthians 12, and then we'll look at a couple other passages. So 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm actually going to begin in verse 4. We're going to back up a little bit to the passage kind of before the section we looked at this morning and begin reading in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. And so I want to say off the top, anytime we get into discussions of passages like this, that I, there, there is a worthy discussion to be had about gifts of the Spirit and what exactly that means and what exactly the indwelling of the Holy Spirit means and does not mean. Uh, but understand for just the, the purpose of tonight's conversation that we do, we do not believe in the continuance of gifts of the Spirit such as healing or uh, utterance of prophecy or gifts of tongues. As for why, like I said, it's a conversation for another time. But what I want us to focus on is really the first few verses we read when he talks about the varieties of gifts. Because even though we don't believe in necessarily the gifts of the Spirit in the sense of healing or in the sense of speaking of tongues, we do believe that we each have the Holy Spirit in us, that we both have a piece of, like, we each represent a piece of Christ's body. And so we each bring something to the table. And, and, and hopefully what I mean by that will be made clear as we get further into our study. But verse 4 says there is a variety of gifts. And, and often when Paul talks about the variety of gifts, or he talks about already worship, or he talks about the church coming together, he talks about how, how we need all of those gifts to function properly with one another. It does, the, the illustration I gave this morning was that I said I don't think anything represents the church or the unity of the church better than the potluck because everybody brings something to the table, literally. When Jesus was at the Last Supper, you may recall, in a passage we read quite often, in Matthew 26, 26, he says, He took the bread, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, This is my body. So he was sitting at the table, and he broke the bread, and he gave a piece of the bread to everyone. Pieces of the bread, different pieces, same loaf, as another verse says. But he gave a piece of himself to everyone. Everyone who is in Christ brings something to the church. Because there is that part of Christ, there is that part of the Spirit that resides within you if you are a Christian. And so when, you come to the, when we come together as the church, there's, there's not one thing that someone brings that's more important than what somebody else brings. And that's actually, in the context of 1 Corinthians, that's not to ruin anybody's wedding day passage, but that's actually what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. For the record. Ask me about that another time. But the... He goes on to talk about how there's all these gifts that everyone brings to the church and they have to work together. And the most important of these gifts is actually love. And that all of those things that we do has to be done out of love. But the point is that all of the gifts that we bring, and, and again, I don't necessarily mean our, anything miraculous or any ability to heal or any ability to speak in tongues. But the, the natural gifts and abilities that we have, we bring to the table to... For the, for the betterment, as the text says, of the common good or for the building up of the church. There's not one thing that, that somebody brings to the table that's necessarily more important or more significant or, or better or worse or lesser than what anybody else brings. And in 1 Corinthians 10, just, just a few pages earlier, Paul actually makes the same point from, the, from, from drawing from the same example that I mentioned, from the institution of the Last Supper. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, it is... It, 
is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we come together as the church, we need to understand that everyone is contributing, everyone is partaking, everyone is involved in the things that they bring to the table. I think this is reflected, or it should be, and I believe it is, in our worship. When we conduct our worship, we have someone who leads prayer. We have someone who brings a song. We have someone who heads a table. We have someone who reads scripture because in that sense, we are all bringing various gifts. And this is why I was going to mention this in a meeting, but we can go ahead and address this here. That is, as we continue thinking about 2023, and understand I don't have the power to force this to happen. I don't have the power to dictate this to happen. So let me be clear about what I'm saying and not saying, I guess, but... If we understand this passage of 1 Corinthians 12 correctly, I think over the next year there is no reason that, that we cannot have a man from every family be involved in the worship service. And again, I, I understand. I don't want to speak with any more authority than I have. I don't want to put on some kind of uh, implication that I can force this to happen or dictate this to happen. I only have the authority to read from the text and speak from the text, which says that we... We do have spiritual gifts that we bring to the worship service. And so uh, when, when we talk about involvement and really having an equal participation in the church, I think there's really nothing stopping us from a man from every family being involved in some way in the worship service at some point over the next year. Because the things that we do in worship, really when we break them down, they're all things we're called to do on our own. If we're, if we're Christians and we're doing the things we're commanded to do, we should feel comfortable praying. We should feel comfortable reading scripture. We should feel comfortable engaging in, in sort of public worship, if I could call it that. And I get it. I, trust me, I understand. If I said every, every man in each family needs to preach a 40-minute sermon, I understand we'd be in for some rough lessons. That's not really where I'm getting at. I understand that there are, there are different gifts, but praying, singing, reading scripture. And I'll even say this. Maybe not a 40-minute lesson, but even speaking for a few minutes about a scripture. If you've been a Christian for any, in any period of time, really, especially if you've been in the church for decades or raised in the church, as I know many folks have, any of us should be able to speak for a couple minutes about at least one scripture, I would hope. Because we are called to, to do these things in our everyday life. And so the, these are the kinds of things that we ought to be bringing to the table and the things that I want us to think about when we talk about everybody engaging and everybody participating if we understand what it means for us to have a variety of gifts, I'll add to that this as well. We have, I believe, 10 devos currently on the calendar for the next year. I think one month we go to CYC, one month we go to BBS, so right now there's not one plan for those months. But we have 10 different youth devos planned. There's kind of no reason for the kids to hear from the same two or three guys 10 times. And I love them. No disrespect to anybody like that. But we're... We're really not a small congregation, and I think sometimes we get that mentality like we are. Like, and again, I understand. Some of you are saying, well, well Terrence, but brother, speaking is not my gift. That's okay, but I would also direct you to what Moses said to God when he said, speaking is not my gift. It's a conversation for another time. But I bring this up because just, for, just by way of example, uh, if, if you were with us during the Christmas basket, Marty gave an excellent lesson 
on, on, the, on taking a chance with our lives and, and what it means to take a chance every time we can kind of continue to live outside of uh, obedience to the gospel. You know, it was an amazing lesson. It was a great perspective that I never in a million years would have come up with because I'm not Marty and Marty is not me. And of course, in his very humble way, he was like, well, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really anything like that. It, just, it could have been a lot better. I know. Like, Marty, that was, you said more in three minutes than I've heard men stand up in a podium and say for 25. Because we all, through our experiences, through our life, through our gifts, through our, even just our understanding of the word, of the thing God calls us to, of the things that draw us in, of the things that resonate with us, we all bring something to the table. And so even when we talk about something like reading and speaking on scripture for three minutes, five minutes, I understand that that's not everybody's gift, but you can't tell me it's only three people's gift. I mean, I, it, because then what that makes me begin to wonder is, are we reading and studying on our own? Do we understand scripture? Do, do we have the knowledge and the understanding that we might have having been a Christian for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years? Because as we've studied many times together, and, and I think once in a Sunday night just a few months ago, there is a, a linear level of expectation as we grow in Christians. That the more we mature, the more is expected of us. The longer we've been in Christ, the more we are expected to understand who he is and his word. And I do want to say, I guess acknowledge off the top here. I think there was probably a period, and I don't want to speak for anybody because I wasn't here to witness it. But I'm willing to imagine there was a period where we felt like we were in crisis mode. And I don't know if anybody's a, a Star Trek fan. Whenever the ship is under attack, the classic line is like, defer power to engines and shields, right? We need to keep going this way, and we've got to stop people who are over there. I mean, nothing else matters right now. We just want to keep this train going down the tracks. And I understand, given instability, given COVID, given the pandemic, we would, we would, far, we would be far from the only church to have been in crisis mode from 2020 onwards. But... We really shouldn't be operating in crisis mode anymore. And, and I fear that as we think about the things that we used to do or the activities that we used to be involved in and the events that used to go on, we say, well, somewhere around 2020, we just stopped doing those things. Well, sometime during COVID, we just stopped having the ability to do this. Or sometime, well, you know, I was at a, I was at a tropical smoothie the other day. I must have been in Clarksville, I guess. And there was these girls behind the counter, and one of them was talking about how COVID really interrupted their like middle school graduation, going from like sixth to seventh grade or seventh to eighth grade or something, some middle school event in there. I was like, what? COVID was like yesterday. They let middle schools work at a tropical smoothie? I said, well, if she was eighth grade, you wanted a freshman. If she was 16 in 2020, she might be 18. I was like, wow. I know time has flown by, but the truth is, there comes a time where we need to be willing to put the past in the past and move on. And so I understand that we may have been operating in sort of a, an engine and shields only crisis mode, but and there was a time where it took everything as our power in a congregation to just keep moving forward. But now we should be able to embrace the things that we are called to do as a church. We should be able to take on the things that we are called to do as a church. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, through the period of instability, some of us probably got used to it, and we got lax. 
And I think it's time for us to reevaluate where we are at and what we can do in light of the current situation and start thinking about things with a 2023 mindset and not still thinking about things with a 2020 mindset even though it was two years ago. And I joke, but I'll tell you something else. I was talking to somebody the other day. I, I, I get that I'm young, but I tell people I'm old enough that I still count the decades backwards from 2000. Now, does anybody else do that? That I still think of the 90s as 10 years ago and the 80s of 20 years ago. And the, when someone says 1950, my brain still goes, the easy math, 50 years. Well, I'm a little behind. I need to reevaluate. I need to recalibrate. Thinking a little bit, we need to recalibrate. Because yes, there was a time where that, that made sense and that was probably fitting, but it's been a while since then. And I really, maybe I'm not aware of something that's going on, but I don't really see a reason for us to continue operating in crisis mode anymore. This was a, a, a presidential disaster relief situation. I would, I would feel happy declaring a state of emergency over. And hopefully you would agree. So I told you we were looking at an example of what we were talking about when we were done with this text. So if you have, if turn to John 6. John 6, even though you may not have looked at actually this account of it, is probably a story you've heard about a dozen times. It's one of the rare passages that's found in uh, all four Gospels. You find it in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 9. But in John 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. I want to read this for you. Uh, John 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. <clears throat> Lifting up his eyes then... And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? I know we're kind of in the middle of the action. I'll leave you with the cliffhanger. You can figure out later next week on our episode of Walking with Jesus on how this ends. But I want you to understand just briefly what's going on at this moment in verse 9. There are men who knew what to do. I believe it was Matthew who includes the detail that, that the disciples were kind of encouraging Jesus. Look, we've been here all day. You've been teaching all day. Uh, it's supper time. Send these people away so they can go get something to eat. Ready to, it's day is breaking, it's time for dinner, and they know how Jesus usually teaches, and then after he teaches, he prays, and then usually after he's done teaching, the disciples and Jesus go get something to eat, and so they know it's dinner time, and they're saying, yeah, all of y'all go find something to eat, and we're going to go eat with Jesus. Have you ever been in that awkward situation after church where you're going to eat with some family, but you're not going to eat with everybody, and somebody asks you where you're going to eat, and you're like, oh, yeah, we haven't, we haven't decided yet. We don't know where we're going. It's like, well, you know, like three places in town. How do you not know? Oh, we just haven't decided yet. That's kind of what Peter is doing, I imagine. The crowds are like, man, we're getting hungry. And he's like, yeah, there's probably food like that way somewhere. And Jesus kind of calms him down and he says, no, hold on. So Jesus already knows where this is going. The disciples just haven't quite figured it out yet. 
And that's when Jesus makes it clear that, no, he intends to feed everybody. And so the disciples know what to do in the sense that they understand it's supper time. But they don't have any supplies. They don't have any equipment. None of them are holding food. None of them have brought anything. They don't feel equipped to do what Jesus is asking them to do. Then in verse 9, something happens. In verse 9, they find a young boy. It says young boy, probably too young to really know exactly what's going on. They're a young boy who has food, supplies. He doesn't really know what to do with them. The text doesn't tell us why he brought fish and loaves or why a young boy had five different loaves of bread and two fish, which would not be enough for a crowd, but it's certainly probably more than one child needs. But there's a young boy who has these supplies and doesn't really know what to do. And there's these men who understand that it's time to feed everybody, but they don't really have the material to do so. And you know what Jesus does? He takes the men who have knowledge but no food, and the boy who has food and no knowledge, and he brings them together. And when these people are brought together in Christ, it's not just the boy that's fed, it's not just the disciples that's fed, it's not just the disciples and their families, or just the boy and his family, or even them and their ten best friends and a hundred other people. It says, when, when, the, when the boy with food and no knowledge and the men with knowledge and no food come together, 5,000 people were fed that day. I want you to think about that for a moment. 5,000 people. In Matthew 5.14, a passage I reference often, Jesus tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. When we come together in Christ, when we bring our gifts to the table, so to speak, and understand I'm not talking about the offering anymore, but when we bring our our talents and our abilities and our perspectives and our life experience and our, our Christian knowledge and understanding of God, when we bring those things to the table... And we participate and we plug in and we engage to a connected spiritual community who are, who are not just people coexisting, but they're actually a, a body. There is a blessing that happens there. There's a blessing that happens that's, that, that's not just a blessing for you and it's not just a blessing for me or even a blessing just for our congregation, but it's actually a blessing for everybody in the community. There's people in Dover, Tennessee in Stewart County, who are waiting to be blessed by the church and they don't even know it yet. Who could be immensely rich, whose lives could be changed by the actions of our congregation and they don't even know it yet. In the context of John 6, if the boy doesn't show up, the miracle doesn't happen. The disciples don't show up, the miracle doesn't happen. And naturally, if Jesus doesn't show up, the miracle definitely doesn't happen. But understand that if the young boy with the basket of fish and the loaves or the disciples who followed Jesus made the very simple decision to just not go hear what Jesus had to say that day, if something else came up, if they decided not to really bring the gifts, the boy decided to go but not bring any bread, or if the disciples decided to go but not really have any interest in solving this problem, 
If they both didn't show up, 5,000 people go home hungry. Maybe they hear what Jesus said. Maybe they don't. Maybe they stick around. I don't, I don't know. They don't, don't have that ability to forecast what happens there. But what we do is not just about you and it's not just about me. When Jesus tells us that we ought to be a city on the hill and our light ought to shine before man, it's not just so that our house can be illuminated or our street can be lit, but he actually says it's there so that it can shine before all men. It's about the communities and the people around us. And so when we come together as the body of Christ, yes, we are to teach, to admonish, to encourage, to edify as many, many, many scriptures would attest and indicate. But we don't just do so that we may be lifted up, although we should be lifted up. And we don't just do it so that we can learn and have knowledge of God, though we should have knowledge of God. We do it so that we can actually draw other people into knowledge and a relationship with God. Which leads me nicely to our, our next passage of the church, which is really the, uh, we're going to look at two, and then we'll close. Uh, turn to Mark 16. We're also going to look at uh, Matthew 28, 18. Before the evening is over, but we'll start out with Mark sixteen fifteen, which, as you may know, is a parallel passage. It says almost the same thing. The end of Mark, at the very last words of the Gospel of Mark in Mark sixteen fifteen. He said, "He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be." Condemned. Been much written about the meaning, the exact understanding of Mark 16, 16. Because many people believe there to be a, a loophole of some kind. Because as the text says, it does say, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so many have asked, and I'm sure you have heard, well, what about one who believes who is not baptized? To which the logical clear answer through many examples of scripture, several from the conversion accounts in the book of Acts alone, is that to the disciples, to the early church, believing without obedience was not an option. That was, was not a, a logical statement. When you look at how they talk about their belief in Jesus or their faith in Jesus, never once do they talk about a faith that leads them anywhere but down a path to obedience. Understand that this word belief is not simply uh, what I've referred to as intellectual acknowledgement, as some may claim. It is not just saying, I know that Jesus of Nazareth existed, and I think he was a human who lived on the earth. That is not what that means. I've heard many people say, and I'm sure you have as well, that acknowledging or recognizing his existence or uh, believing in a very loose sense of the word in his existence is enough. But it is not this, this acknowledgement that's described in the Gospels, but it's faith. Faith that leads to action, faith that leads to obedience, faith that leads to, to love and, and an understanding of who he was. And to Mark, the, the reason this sentence is structured the way it is, is that to Mark, belief necessarily was equivalent to obedience, and that obedience included baptism. That's why he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
It's like me saying, I, left the, I went out the doors and went to my car. Or, I did not go out the doors. Which of you would ask, well, what happens if you don't go out the doors, but you go to your car? I would say something in the metaphysics of time and space has happened, because that question does not even make sense. But understand that a deep faith and a belief in Christ and who he does necessitates obedience. But despite that side road for a moment, the focus of our passage is actually from the first half of what we read. When he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. It's a directive. It's a pretty simple one. It's not an easy one, to to be clear, uh, but it's a fairly simple one. Let's look over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, as I stated, is a, a parallel passage. You might recall when we first began talking about the purpose of the church, I mentioned that it's this last paragraph of Matthew 28 that probably comes to our mind. So in a sense, we've been building to this for a while now. Look at Matthew 28, and we'll begin, we'll read the whole section. We'll begin in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Understand that when we read this text, this is, by all accounts, Jesus' last words to his disciples, to his followers. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, if you had the opportunity to speak at your own funeral. Now, obviously, we know Jesus is dead and he's been resurrected again. Um, If this applies to you, imagine speaking at your own ascension. But the rest of us will imagine speaking at our own funeral. And you got to tell people, whatever it was on your heart, your family, your friends, all those who were gathered there to see you off. And you got to tell them the the, the thoughts that were on your heart that you just wanted to make very sure everybody had heard you say before you left this plane of existence. And he tells them three things. He gives the shortest, most perfect three-point sermon ever given to mankind. He says, go into all the nations and make disciples. And you'll notice he does say all the nations. And of course we know nations was the same word for Gentiles. And he was actually already telling them, no, not just the Jews. Don't just go to the people you think are God's people. Don't just go to the children of Abraham. Don't just go to the the ones in the synagogues and the temples. But he says, go to all nations making disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And that last part is probably why you heard me say I get hung up when people talk about things that are essential or not essential for being a Christian. And I understand that there's a point at which we're in a saving relationship with Jesus and there's a point at which we're not. But I really fight this mentality to say that, well, some things in the Bible are essential and the others are... 
I mean, what are you going to call those? All that I have commanded you. And as a note of encouragement before he leaves, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Making disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Much like the Mark's account of preach the gospel, it's a pretty simple, straightforward message. There's not a lot we could say to make it any more clear. Mark says preach the gospel. Matthew says make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them. If there is even the slightest point of confusion, it might be that, well, what's the difference? Well, it's the same thing. I want to read one more passage that I think links these two ideas very well. Flip over to Romans 10. Truthfully, in talking about what we ought to do when we preach and the message of salvation, we could read all of Romans 10. Uh, but for the sake of time, we'll just read verse 14 through 17. From Romans 10, verse 14 through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul says, necessarily, people need to hear. And for people to hear, someone has to be speaking to them. And for someone to speaking them, there has to be someone else who taught them, who sent them. To preach, we have to go. To preach, we have to make disciples. And actually, if we put all of these ideas together, what you'll find is that there are followers of Jesus when he's on earth. There are followers. And from those hundreds of thousands of crowds of who followed him everywhere, and I don't mean followers in a figurative sense. I mean, literally, there were throngs that followed him everywhere he went. And from those followers, he raised up disciples. And disciple is really just a million-dollar word for a student. It's where we get the words like discipline. Some of them became students of his teachings. And this is what we call the disciples, and we call it as some sort of title or honorary term. But what's funny is the disciple is actually le a lesser term than a Christian. Because they were students, but they had not really understood what he had to say yet. And then after Jesus died, after Jesus rose again, and when Jesus established the church, then there was Christians. And the Bible tells us that when we become Christians, we ought to be sent. And we ought to preach. Teach them all that he has commanded. We ought to be raising up people to follow the church in our teaching. We ought to be raising up people to then become students of really of what we're teaching. People who have an understanding of their own, who, who are starting to really pick this up for their own benefit. And then we ought to be making those people Christians in obedience with the gospel and obedience with what he's commanded us to do. But if you'll notice, it doesn't even stop there. 
I've heard way too many references to the Great Commission that says baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they put a period in that sentence where there is not one. Because the rest of what he says is teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. As we close this evening, we want to again offer the invitation to those who are on the outside, to those who have not made that commitment or those who need to recommit their lives to Christ. Now is the time. If you have a need, won't you come while we stand and while we sing? Days are filled with sorrow and